0: This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com
1: to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These
0: are their stories. Hey cardi nerds family, Dan Ambender here. It's time to dive back into our comprehensive adult congenital heart disease series co-chaired by doctors Agnes Kogso, Dan Clark, and Josh Safe. In this episode, we'll be learning all about tetralogy of Fallot with faculty expert Dr. George Louie from Stanford University and lead fellow Dr. Charlie Jane from Mayo Clinic. Stay with us. We thank our collaborators at the Adult Congenital Heart Association, the CHIP Network, and Heart University. These are organizations with incredibly committed people who work tirelessly to improve the lives of those living with ACHD. You can find the links to these organizations in the episode description. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education, to continue creating free and unbiased quality content we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardi Nerds without external bias. And with that, let's get on with the show. Hey,
1: Cardi Nerds, it's Joss ja Safe, and I'm here again with Dan. And we're excited to present another key installment of our CardioNerds ACHD series. In this episode, we will be reviewing the classic Tetralogy of Fallot. And joining us will be CardioNerds veteran, Dr. Charlie Jane from the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. George Louie from Stanford University. It is my honor to introduce Charlie. Charlie grew up in the Chicago area and went to medical school at the University of Illinois. He went on to internal medicine residency at Massachusetts General Hospital before moving to Minnesota to do his cardiology fellowship at Mayo. He continued on there and is currently an ACHD fellow in the Mayo Clinic. The last thing that I'll say is that for those of you who enjoyed episode 59 of Cardio Nerd's, you guys will remember Charlie
2: as Mr. Pericardian. So with that, welcome back, Charlie. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Josh. And thank you very much, CardioNerds, for having me back. I'm honored to be here. And today I have the honor of introducing Dr. George Louis. Dr. Louis earned his medical degree from Yale, subsequently completed his combined medicine and pediatric residency at Harvard, and completed his fellowship in adult congenital at Columbia. He then found his way to the sunshine and moved over to the Bay Area. He's currently a clinical associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at Stanford University. He's currently the medical director of the adult congenital heart program at Stanford. He has gained national recognition for both his work clinically and also his research. Dr. Louis, it is an honor to have you on the show with us today.
3: Thank you so much, Charlie. Thank you so much, Josh, for the kind introduction and for the invitation to be on this podcast with Cardio Nerds. I look forward to our discussion on Tetralogy of Flow.
2: Great, and Dr. Louis, as an ACHD fellow myself, I'd love to hear how did you get interested in adult congenital heart disease? I became
3: interested in adult congenital heart disease as a medical student at Yale. I was rotating with pediatric cardiologists and also the pediatric cardiac surgeons there and noticed that more and more adults were showing up in our children's hospital and found that there was a unique niche for individuals who had dual training in both internal medicine and pediatrics who could care for these individuals as they grew up into adulthood and shift their care to the adult hospital.
2: That's pretty interesting. Great to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah,
1: no, thank you very much. So before diving into a case, can we do a quick recap on some of the facts on Tetralogy of Fallot? Charlie, can you give us some of the details to get us warmed
2: up? Sounds good. So as you all likely recall from medical school and first aid, Tetralogy of Fallot is one of the five T's of cyanotic congenital heart disease. And indeed, it's the most common of the cyanotic lesions. It comprises almost 10% of all forms of congenital heart disease. Now, you might be wondering, what happens embryologically to cause this? Well, if you're anything like me, chances are you don't remember much of anything from embryology in med school. But I'll remind you that the heart formation starts as a tube, and then it undergoes a complex sequence of turning and twisting, which results in the four chambers we all recognize now. With tetralogy of flow, the most important considerations in the embryology are of the primitive outflow tracts. So early in gestation, this is a hollow tube termed the conotruncus. Neural crest tissue migrates into the tube and forms two major collections of endocardial cushion tissue. Those collections develop opposite each other, rotating in a counterclockwise spiral through the entire conotruncus. Once formed, the cushions grow into the tube's lumen and fuse at the midline to create a distinct, balanced, systemic left ventricular outflow tract and aortic root and pulmonary right ventricular outflow tract and main pulmonary artery outflow channels. Inferiorly, the cushions fuse with the interventricular septum. Dr. Louis, any other considerations we should know about this?
3: The principal development abnormality and tetralogy flow has continually been debated amongst cardiac pathologists. There are two schools of thoughts, one by Richard Van Prague and the other by Bob Anderson. I'll stay in North America, and in North America, we go by Richard Van Prague, who advocated for the hypoplasia of the subpulmonary infundibulum. This is the muscle or conus under the pulmonary valve, and when the infundibulum is small, there is an anterocephalate deviation of the infundibulum, meaning basically that the aorta moves anterior and crowds into the right ventricular outflow tract. This results in the failure of septation and the overriding aorta, which are the hallmarks of tetralogy of flow. Got it, Dr. Louis. Thank you so much. And Charlie, thank you again for setting us all up
0: with the base structure of what's going on with Tetralogy of Fallot and how it comes to be. Can you then remind us what are the consequent anatomical abnormalities of Tetralogy of Fallot that this embryological problem leads to?
2: Sure, happy to. So, the four pathognomonic abnormalities, which were originally described by Dr. Fallot back in 1888, are RVOT obstruction, which is always subvalvular and may or may not have valvular and or supervalvular components an in interventricular communication or VSD, the third one's aortic override, and then fourth is right ventricular hypertrophy which occurs secondary to the obstruction. So all of these defects are the consequence of the anterocephalad deviation that Dr. Louis described and variation in the magnitude of this deviation is what drives a lot of the variability and the severity of the patient's condition and when they present. So some patients experience significant deviation, and that causes significant pulmonary atresia even. That essentially cuts off any connection between the right ventricle and the pulmonary arteries, which will then be non-confluent. At the other end of the spectrum, more mild deviation may lead to what we sometimes call as a pink tet, one that basically doesn't have much in the way of cyanosis or right-to-left shunting, but they later on in life will have more significant RB hypertrophy. Dr. Lee, do you have any other thoughts to add on just sort of the hemodynamic consequences
3: of embryologic issue? Sure, Charlie just went through the anatomical issues in tetralogy of Fallot, and really, when you break it down in congenital heart disease for an infant, it's either too much pulmonary blood flow or too little pulmonary blood flow. So you're either blue or you're pink, but you're ultimately cyanotic in this lesion. And so, as he described, an infant with severe RV outflow tract obstruction will shunt right to left across the VSD and have reduced pulmonary blood flow and cyanosis will be recognized almost within a few days of life. But alternatively, the pink tet, who has minimal RV outflow tract obstruction, behaves like actually like an unrestricted BSD. So that patient is going to have too much pulmonary blood flow and will have near normal oxygen saturation at birth, so maybe under-recognized. And these infants don't develop cardiac failure until about four to five weeks of life due to the increasing pulmonary blood flow as the pulmonary vascular resistance drops, and they shot left to right across the BSD. This is very, very helpful. And so we're basically understanding that the degree
0: of anatomic abnormality will lead to the degree of severity with tetralogy flow. So really appreciate that. Charlie, can you bring us up to speed regarding genetic mutations known to cause or be associated with tetralogy
2: Yeah, great question, Dan. While there are a few genes associated with tetralogy, the majority of cases don't seem to have a recognized mutation. That being said, probably about 15% of cases are associated with the syndrome, most commonly microdeletion 22Q11, or as we commonly know as DeGeorge or Velocardiofacial syndrome. That being said, DeGeorge syndrome is associated with any type of conotruncal cardiac abnormality, so truncus arteriosus, interrupted aortic arch. So it's hard to say that it's really what causes tetralogy. But it should be noted that in patients, first-degree relatives are going to be at significant increased risk for any type of chronotruncal defect, not necessarily tetralogy. Dr. Luer, any other thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The genetics of tetralogy of Fallot um, aren't well understood. There are some syndromes that are associated with it. There is a recurrence risk that we know for offsprings of patients with tetralogy of Fallot, probably around 2 to 4%. Genetic testing for 22Q11 is recommended in the guidelines by the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association that it's reasonable to do it in patients with conotruncal defects such as tetralogy of flow.
1: Thank you so much. And clearly, it's an area where we're learning more. I'm impressed with how much we know given sort of how complicated the embryology is and how complicated the genetics associated with that embryology is. So tetralogy of flow is clearly a part of a family of defects. And I think we recognize that now even more so given the information we've heard so far about genetics. Are there any other congenital anomalies that we know of
3: that we may see in patients with Tetralogy of Fallot? Sure. Tetralogy of Fallot, like you said, is a family of defects. I'll start before going over the associated defects, kind of the main groups of Tetralogy of Fallot. We generally group them up into Tetralogy of Fallot with varying degrees of right ventricular outflow tract and pulmonary stenosis. But there are also Tetralogy of Fallot with a common AV canal. There's also Tetralogy of Fallot with absent pulmonary valve. And as Charlie described, there's Tetralogy of Fallot within the most extreme form with pulmonary atresia. Then associated defects include atrial septal defects, which can occur in more than 50% of them. And this is often referred to as Pentology of Fallot, giving a fifth defect to the four pathognomonic features of Tetralogy of Fallot. A right aortic arch is seen in about 25% of the time. The clockwise rotation of the aortic root, which we haven't discussed, results in abnormalities of the coronary arteries. And one of the most common abnormalities of the coronary arteries is an anomalous LED from the right coronary artery. Awesome. Thank you
1: so much. I think now we've recovered most of what we learned in med school studying for step one and honestly already learned a whole lot more. Now let's dig into a case. So Ms. Tetra Towson is a 30-year-old woman with a history of 22q11 microdeletion syndrome, hepatitis C, and tetralogy of flow with multiple prior surgeries. She's now coming in with progressive fatigue and dyspnea on exertion over the past year since you saw her last. Her surgical history includes a right classic lailog taussig Thomas shunt at one and a half years old, shunt takedown at the time of a transannular patch repair at six years old, and residual VSD closure at seven years old. This is a lot of Greek to a lot of people. Can one of you please translate all of this surgical history for our listeners?
2: Sure. I'll start with the shunt. So the Blalock-Tosic-Thomas shunt, or the BTT shunt, refers to a surgically created shunt from a subclavian artery to a main pulmonary artery. So for instance, the right subclavian to the right pulmonary artery. In fact, this procedure, which was first performed back in 1944, was seminal in the field of congenital cardiac surgery, and it is still performed today was actually developed at Johns Hopkins by Dr. Alfred Blaylock and Dr. Helen Tossig, along with Vivian Thomas, who is a lab assistant was cornerstone in its development. So classically, they took the entire subclavian artery and they transposed it on over to the pulmonary artery, as was done in this patient. Whereas today, it's often considered a modified BT shunt because they use some type of prosthetic material, such as Gore-Tex, and they divert some of the subclavian blood flow to the pulmonary artery. Charlie, thank you so much for that. And this is one of my favorite pieces of cardiology
0: history. And just like any great historical story, there's an awesome, semi-accurate, so I'm told, movie, Something the Lord Made, which details the dynamic between Dr. Blaylock, Dr. Taussig, and Dr. Thomas, as well as some of the challenges that they faced at the time. And I'm actually at Johns Hopkins today literally walk to the Blaylock building today to look for, scrounging up some lunch for myself. And I always stop and glance at this portrait of Dr. Vivian Thomas when I do that and always think about the story. And, and another a side note is I did a lot of PA research last year on animal models and I'm actually was using the room that Dr. Vivian Thomas used, not necessarily for this particular event, but just a room that he used. And so the movie gave me goosebumps and the whole story is something that just is absolutely remarkable. So this Blalock, Taussig, and Thomas shunt is a great example of a
2: systemic circulation to PA shunt. Charlie, are there other examples of the like? Correct. And yeah, there's a few other shunts. And so surgical repair of tetralogy has been evolving for more than 75 years. Alternative shunts, albeit less often performed, are the POT shunt, which is the descending aorta to left pulmonary artery, so it's more posterior, and the Waterston shunt, which is the ascending aorta to the right pulmonary artery. These were used more often in the distant past when a stage approach was frequently performed. So while the BT shunt was the first, it was certainly not the last. Children would have a palliative shunt placed in their infancy and then eventually undergo a complete repair at ages around 4 or 6 years. The complete repair in tetralogy typically consists of a surgical VSD closure, addressing the RVOT obstruction by removing obstructed infundibular muscle bundles, repair or replacement of the pulmonic valve, and or placement of a condiment to facilitate the right ventricle to pulmonary artery flow. A number of patients also have narrowing in their more peripheral pulmonary arteries, which will have to be addressed because if there's no flow, no growth. The development of deep hypothermic circulatory arrest and cardiac bypass in general improved operative mortality in patients undergoing early total repair. This encouraged more centers to abandon the staged approach. Some data indicate that their early complete repair may reduce RV hypertrophy and promote pulmonary blood vessel growth. But every patient is different and we need a tailored approach.
1: Dr. Louis, any other thoughts on the surgical sequence?
2: Sure.
3: As Charlie mentioned, every patient is like a history lesson. I love this field because we get to learn all the changes that have happened in surgery. I think in another life, I would be a pediatric cardiac surgeon. The systemic to PA shunts dramatically improved cyanosis and provided pretty reasonable midterm results for these children with Tetralogy of Fallot. Uh, now you have to remember in the 1940s when the BTT shunt was created, there was not a definitive surgical solution. This was a palliative procedure. The complete surgical repair was not performed until 1954 when Dr. Lillehei used cross-circulation in order to repair the first 10-year-old boy with Tetralogy of Fallot. This was carried out between the child and the father. And obviously, this carries a lot of risk for both the donor and the patient. So that in 1955, Dr. Kirkland at the Mayo Clinic used the first bypass machine to correct Tetralogy of Fallot and several papers have since detailed the success of their surgical repair with over 80% survival out 30-40 years. Tetralogy flow was performed via either a longitudinal or transverse incision in the right ventricle. Through this, the hypertrophied subpulmonary infundibulum was resected and any valvular pulmonary stenosis was relieved. Patients with an insufficiently sized pulmonary annulus were managed by extending the ventriculotomy across the valve and into the main PA so that the pericardial patch could be used to augment the right ventricular outflow tract when necessary. And these, what we call transannular patches, provide a complete relief of the right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, but at the cost of destroying the pulmonary valve leaflets. The VSD was closed with the ventriculotomy during the 1960s, most centers reserved this type of full repair of of flow for patients that had to be over basically the age of four to six. So you had all these infants or young children with a systemic to PA shunts and did not have full repair until they were much older. And cardiologists and surgeons really favored this stage approach with the early initial palliation. It wasn't until about 1960s, 70s, When they did the first successful repair of a tetralogy of flow patient under the age of one, and like Charlie mentioned, it's the development of deep hypothermic circulatory arrest that allowed for this correction. By the 1970s, the stage approach was abandoned for most patients in favor of early repair, as this would avoid the risk of a shut procedure, reduce the right ventricular hypertrophy, and promote pulmonary blood vessel growth early on. Today, we now perform elective TOF repair at about three to six months of age. Also during the 1970s, one other important development in surgery was the transatrial approach. As I mentioned before, they did primarily ventriculotomies, which would result in full thickness scar of the right ventricle. And by doing a transatrial approach, we would avoid that ventriculotomy. And do the repair by looking through the tricuspid valve, taking maybe down the septal leaflet of the tricuspid valve, and repairing the VSD and resecting the subpulmonary infundibulum. Maybe they might do it from also a transpulmonary approach as well. And today, survival with TOF repair is greater than ninety percent out thirty years. Well, wow, Doctor Louis, thanks so much for that overview in detail
0: in terms of the history surrounding intracardiac repair. And it's so nice to hear that things have advanced to the point where we're getting really great durable outcomes. But I would imagine the durability of repairs, particularly intracardiac, may be an issue, particularly since these surgeries are done when children are so young and now they grow into adulthood. So, Charlie, true or false, complications with the pulmonic valve are among the most common issues encountered in adults with tetralogy of flow. What do you think?
2: Absolutely, man. So... Without a doubt, that is the most common thing. And if you're not going to know anything else about tetralogy of Fallot in adults, if you see someone with tetralogy, you don't have any other history, but you know they had surgery early on in life, chances are their pulmonic valves abnormal and they likely have severe pulmonary regurgitation. And so in terms of this patient, what's notable is that she's presenting with fatigue. That's really common in patients with pulmonic regurgitation since it contributes to a low output state. That's significantly different than how they present early on in life. So Josh, do you have any other details about her initial presentation? I'm so glad
1: you asked. So when she was born, she was noted to have some perioral cyanosis, and this progressed over her first few days of life. She underwent a cardiac catheterization on day four of life, which led to her diagnosis of tetralogy of fluo. Gradually, over the next couple of months, her cyanosis improved, though she had intermittent episodes during her first year of life where she would hyperventilate with recurrence of the perioral cyanosis. Um, And this also happened a lot when she was crying. Fortunately, her parents would promptly call their pediatric cardiologist, and they would press her knees to her chest, which led to improvement. Dr. Louis, I've heard of certain maneuvers changing the hemodynamics in conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This sounds like Tetra has an initial improvement and now is
3: intermittently having changes in her pulmonary blood flow. What's going on here? That's right, Josh. With uh, worsening infundibular stenosis and right ventricular hypertrophy in the RV outflow tract, there's going to be ultimately reduced pulmonary blood flow and a shift of the shunt right to left across the BSD and intermittent hypercyanotic episodes, what we call TET spells are a defining feature of tetralogy flow. These are provoked by crying and result in acute imbalance between systemic and pulmonary blood flow, resulting in further cyanosis. Older children with unrepaired TOF learn to squat after exercise in order to relieve the TET spell. This is probably due to the increase in systemic vascular resistance that results in improvement in blood flow to the lungs with squatting. And if you ask any patient who had a late TET repair, usually above the age of six to eight, they'll remember this maneuver of squatting during exercise in order to improve their symptoms.
2: That was great, Dr. Louie. And just wanted to mention, I recently had a pretty wild case a 27 year old underpaired tetralogy, not born in the US. And indeed, even when he would be walking around the clinic, there's times where he'd have to squat down. And as you'd imagine, since he was cyanotic, his sats were low, his hemoglobin was about 23. He was, it's pretty incredible. So, thank you.
1: The physiology is wild interesting. I think at this stage where we're talking about specifically TET spells in an unrepaired setting, but also in the cath lab, something that's described in situations where we do percutaneous pulmonary valve replacement, the idea of the suicide right ventricle, or at least what's been described. The RV is important in in congenital heart disease, but in cardiology more broadly. And so this is definitely a situation where I think about how how other important dynamic changes that happen on that side of the heart. Getting back to our case. After her BTT shunt at one and a half years old, her color improved, but she developed congestive heart failure. This was managed initially with digoxin and diuretics until she had her complete repair at six years old. Following her surgical correction, she improved significantly and had some improvement in her appetite, gained some weight, uh, was able to improve her exertional capacity, and didn't have any further cyanosis. She did, however, later develop some recurrent heart failure symptoms about a year out. At that time, she underwent a diagnostic evaluation. A residual VSD was noted, and it was easily closed. In the time since,
2: really, she has not had any notable issues. Great to hear all those details. Thank you. And so just like Dr. Louis said earlier, either they have too much pulmonary blood flow or too little. So early on, she had too little and she was blue. Then later on, she had too much. It was a pink tet but had heart failure from LV overload. And then another nugget of ACHD, which there's so many, and I'm trying to eat them all, and it's very filling. Basically, you mentioned that she has a history of hepatitis C. And as Dr. Louis said, all these patients are history lessons. A lot of these patients had surgery, as we mentioned, a long time ago, long before screening for hepatitis C was common. And so it's not uncommon to see patients with congenital heart disease who had surgery early on to have hepatitis C
1: you know an extremely important consideration
2: and that's why we may see liver disease
1: in many patients with general heart disease certainly not the only reason but i'm, I'm going to tell you guys about her exam and we can take it from there so when we met her her blood pressure was 100 over 70 in the left arm and she didn't have any pulse in the right arm because of her prior btt shunt her heart rate was 70 and she was setting 98% on room air on inspection there was a large scar on her right thorax consistent with her prior thoracotomy along with a sternotomy scar. Her JVP is normal. Her lungs are clear. There's a 2 plus RV heat. That being said, her LV impulse and PMI are normal. There is a 2 out of 6 systolic ejection murmur at the base, mid-peaking, followed by a single second heart sound, which is followed shortly thereafter by a grade 3 diastolic decrescendo murmur. The liver is not enlarged, and there's no peripheral
3: edema. Dr. Louis, do you have any initial thoughts on her exam? Sure, Josh. Uh, you mentioned a very important part of obtaining a blood pressure in a patient with uh, tetralogy of flow who's had a BTT shunt. Um, it's important to note which side that shunt is. And one thing that we do is just make sure to look at the surgical scars. Even though patients sometimes don't know their history, you can map the history lesson by looking at their chest. And if you see a left thoracotomy scar in a patient with a tetralogy of flow repair, you can probably suspect that they had a BTT shunt on that side. And therefore, the blood pressure on that side is going to be unreliable. The next feature that you mention is examining and putting your hand on the chest for the right ventricular heave, which is quite common in patients with tetralogy of flow. JVP is typically normal in patients with significant pulmonary regurgitation. But patients with tetralogy of flow can also have restrictive right ventricles. So in that setting, their JBP might be elevated. The other setting that the JBP might be elevated is in patients with concomitant tricuspid regurgitation, where you may see V waves in the JBP examination. Uh, it's important to look for signs of right-sided heart failure. As you mentioned, that there is not hepatomegaly. There's no signs of ascites. These would be all suggestion that there is significant right ventricular volume overload leading to right-sided heart failure. The single S2 is important. And then finally, coming to the pulmonary valve, how do you tell the difference between aortic regurgitation and pulmonary regurgitation? They're both diastolic murmurs. So let me give you the real hallmark of how you tell the difference between PR and AR. Think about the diastolic pressure in the aorta. The diaclolic pressure in the AUR is 80 and it has to travel to an LV end diastolic pressure of 5, right? That's going to be a pretty long murmur. Think about the pulmonary end diastolic pressure, the PA end diastolic pressure. What's that? 10, 20? What does it have to go to? The RV end diastolic pressure. What's that? 0 to 5? How long is that going to take? Nanoseconds? The pulmonary regurgitation murmur is much shorter. And that's one of the hallmark differences between aortic regurgitation and pulmonary regurgitation is the length of the murmur. It's very easy to miss pulmonary regurgitation because it's such a short murmur. If you look on echocardiography and look at the pressure half time in someone who has severe pulmonary regurgitation versus somebody who has severe aortic regurgitation, the pressure half time for somebody with pulmonary regurgitation is less than 100 milliseconds, whereas severe aortic regurgitation is typically somewhere in 200 to 250 milliseconds.
0: Thanks, Dr. Liu. That's a fantastic pearl. Just a quick question: So, does that change as the patient progresses to develop severe pulmonary hypertension,
3: and now you have very elevated right-sided pressures? Absolutely. So, if you have somebody with pulmonary hypertension, the diastolic murmur for pulmonary regurgitation will be longer in that setting because it takes longer for them to equilibrate. The other maneuver that I ask my fellows to do is remember the position of the A and the PA. The aorta is behind the pulmonary artery. So in order to hear aortic regurgitation, we often ask the patient to lean forward, take a deep breath, and exhale completely. By exhaling completely, you can bring the aorta forward and allow you to hear aortic regurgitation a lot better. Now, pulmonary regurgitation ask the patient to lay back, completely flat, taking the aorta backwards and allowing you to hear the pulmonary regurgitation murmur. These are important differences in trying to differentiate between AR and PR in patients with tetralogy of flow who actually can have both murmurs. We haven't talked about the aortic root dilation that happens in tetralogy of flow patients, but that can result in aortic regurgitation. So these patients who have a disrupted pulmonary valve can have severe pulmonary regurgitation and severe aortic regurgitation from aortic root dilation. So it's important in the exam to be able to differentiate from the two murmurs.
2: That was awesome.
1: No, yeah, this is the most useful thing I've learned about physical exams since med school by far. That was hugely interesting. Thank you. Moving on with Tetra's Diagnostics, her EKG showed sinus rhythm with a right bundle branch block and a QRS of 150 milliseconds. It also had an indication of left atrial enlargement. Charlie, is there anything we can glean
2: from this? Yeah, so the right bundle branch block is essentially ubiquitous in patients with tetralogy, and the QRS width has some important prognostic implications in regards to sudden cardiac death risk. So ICDs may be recommended for tetralogy patients for primary prevention and those with multiple risk factors. Dr. Louis already alluded to this earlier when talking about the ventriculotomy as one of the risk factors that we can potentially consider as well. But the usual things that we consider are QRS greater than 180 milliseconds, RV and or LV dysfunction, even diastolic, later repair, and there's many other possible things. I mention this for two reasons. One is because it's important to recognize their increased risk for sudden cardiac death and to consider potential EP study or ablation at the time of surgery. And also to point out that her ECG mentions left atrial enlargement. That kind of sounds funny given that this is a right-sided disease. But given the multiple stressors the left heart has undergone in this anatomically right-sided pathology, such as volume loading from the shunt, so initially the VSD and then her BT, ischemic insults, cyanosis early on in life, multiple bypass pump runs, and then also ventricular interaction with the synchrony can affect both the systolic and diastolic function of the left heart, and you might see left atrial enlargement.
1: Dr. Louis, any other thoughts about the EKG
3: and its findings? Sure, Josh. As Charlie mentioned, QRS greater than 180 milliseconds is an important risk factor for sudden cardiac death. Sudden cardiac death in Tetralogy of Fallot has been reported in the literature from about 1% to 6% uh, varying incidence. I would also mention a couple more risk factors. One is the cardiac MRI-derived RV mass-to-volume ratio as a risk factor for sustained VT and death, and then also looking at delayed enhancement, which is a measure of myocardial fibrosis on MRI. I think that's really important, and we'll be discussing this shortly, that the preservation and restoration of RV size and function and pulmonary valve function may help reduce the risk of sudden cardiac death in this population. It's important when encountering patients with repaired tetralogy of flow and arrhythmias to look and address residual hemodynamic abnormalities before considering EP study and ablation and addressing the arrhythmic issues prior to addressing hemodynamic issues. You know, the hemodynamic issues in tetralogy of flow often lead to the arrhythmic issues.
1: Thanks so much. A lot to consider there with arrhythmias and tetralogy of flow. Clearly, a lot of work to be done in understanding of risk stratification in the population. So coming back to our patient. Her chest X-ray showed significant RV enlargement, which has progressed since prior years. Her lung parenchyma appears free of edema or infiltrates. The chest X-ray, I always feel like, is a great picture of where we are and also is potentially one of the best ways that we can follow patients along over their life, especially patients who've had multiple surgeries and cardiac disease. In patients with tetralogy of flow, are there any special
3: findings that you're looking for on the chest X-ray? Sure, Josh. The chest X-ray is an important tool in our toolbox when taking care of patients with congenital heart disease. In this era of a lot of advanced imaging, we often overlook the chest X-ray and move straight on to our CT or MRI, and I think the chest X-ray can often offer us a lot of important information. When I was visiting the Royal Brompton Hospital in London with Michael Gatsoulis, they get a chest x-ray on every single patient with congenital heart disease. And he wrote a nice paper demonstrating the importance of the cardiothoracic ratio on the AP view. And those patients that had a greater than 55% of the cardiothoracic ratio had an eightfold risk of death in adults with congenital heart disease. In addition to looking at the cardiothoracic ratio and RV enlargement and the silhouette on chest X-ray, I think it's important to look at the left or right aortic arch, which is often 25% of patients with tetralogy of low. You can also look at the dilatation of pulmonary arteries or presence of retrosternal filling in the lateral view, suggesting RV dilation. And then finally, a calcified RV to PA conduit can often be seen on the chest X-ray. It's definitely
1: so much you can take away from a chest
3: X-ray. In this age, even where we have MRI
1: and CT scan, the chest X-ray is more than just a classic. But moving on to some more contemporary modalities, Tetra's echocardiogram did show moderate severe RV dilation with moderate dysfunction. She also had free pulmonic regurgitation, a right ventricular systolic pressure of 52 millimeters mercury with mild TR. Her left atrium was enlarged, but her left ventricle was normal sized and had normal function. Charlie,
2: what information can you glean from these findings? Thank you, Josh. So that RVSP is concerning. That certainly could be due to obstruction of the RV outflow, which as we talked about could be subvalvular, valvular, supervalvular. And presumably there's no subvalvular or valvular obstruction now given her prior transannular patch as Dr. Louis described. However, patients with tetralogy can have branch pulmonary artery stenosis and her prior right BT shunt certainly places her at increased risk for this at the RPA and estimosis site. In addition, the prior VSD and BT shunt increases her risk for pulmonary vascular disease. And as we discussed before, she also has left heart disease, so she could have elevation of left heart pressures causing pulmonary hypertension.
1: Well, the team was a bit concerned about these findings as well, and hence she underwent a cardiac catheterization. Angiography and hemodynamics revealed a mild RPA stenosis, and pressures were actually a bit lower than estimated by echo, with a PA mean of only 21 millimeters mercury. Thus, there wasn't too much concern for pulmonary hypertension. Now, this is a situation where in the cath lab, we're thinking about hemodynamics. Is this a patient where we would consider replacing her pulmonary valve? What do you think, Dr. Lee?
3: Absolutely, Josh. This is a patient who we would consider performing a pulmonary valve replacement. And it's important to talk about the differences between surgical and transcatheter pulmonary valves since you're in the cath lab. But before I get to that we should talk about the indications for pulmonary valve replacement. Considerable attention has been focused on the indications and optimal timing for PVR, even in asymptomatic patients. It's well accepted in the guidelines that PVR offers improvement in symptoms and functional capacity and waiting for symptoms is often too late. Let me reference the ACC AHA 2018 guidelines, which indicate that a patient with severe pulmonary regurgitation in the setting of Tetralogy of Fallot who has symptoms or a decline in functional capacity is a class 1 indication for pulmonary valve replacement. Any two of the following in a patient who's asymptomatic, including mild to moderate RV systolic dysfunction... Severe RV dilation, including RV end diastolic volume by MRI of greater than 160 milliliters per meter square, or an RV end systolic volume of greater than or equal to 80 milliliters per meter square, or an RV end diastolic volume that's greater than two times the LV end diastolic volume, an RVSP that's greater than two-thirds systemic pressure and or progressive reduction in objective exercise tolerance would be a 2A indication for pulmonary valve replacement. Patients with arrhythmias or severe tricuspid regurgitation would also be a 2B indication for pulmonary valve replacement. In regards to surgical versus transcatheter pulmonary valve, surgical PVRs are often necessary for patients who have residual infundibular stenosis patients who require RV outflow tract aneurysm resection, and in your case, a patient with proximal branch PA stenosis may be better addressed in the operating room. Also, residual significant ventricular septal defects, aortic valve and or root replacement, and concomitant tricuspid valve surgery. Patients with a history of arrhythmia may benefit from a maze procedure, and that would be better done in the operating room as well. But let's not forget our transcatheter option. To overcome the need for multiple reoperations, as this patient has already had, Bonhoeffer developed and implanted the first transcatheter pulmonary valve in 2000, and this became the Medtronic Melody valve, which has since been FDA approved. There's also the Edward Sapien valves, which have both been used in the pulmonary position. There are newer generations of self-expanding transcatheter pulmonary valves such as the Harmony valve as well as the Altera valve that have been developed specifically for the anatomy and the large size right ventricular outflow tract in patients with Tetralogy of Fallot. We're still working out the indications for when to use these transcatheter valves versus the surgical pulmonary valve replacements, but I think it does offer the benefit of not having to undergo another sternotomy for these patients.
1: Thank you so much. Clearly it's an important clinical decision making process every time we send one of these patients for a procedure, just with the idea that patients can undergo multiple sternotomies over their lifetime. And if there are percutaneous options that makes sense, um, I'm sure that's something that's appealing on the patient end as well. A uh, fun fact about this case, this is actually a historical case and this presentation that I'm describing has all been about 20 years ago. So right now I'm going to fast forward to the current day. At this time, 20 years ago, she indeed underwent a surgical pulmonary valve replacement along with a patch reconstruction of the RVOT to PA and did very well for many years. Before diving into too much more detail, Charlie, can you tell me how likely it is that somebody with tetralogy of flow can have an enlarged aorta? It seems interesting that we always bring up the overriding aorta when discussing tetralogy of flow, but don't often hear much about the long-term consequences of its presence.
2: Sure, I'll give you what little I know, um, but then I'll defer to Dr. Louis as I know he's written some on this, but I think in general, it's essentially universal that they'll have some degree of aortic dilation, and that's true for any of the conotruncal abnormalities. However, the risk of dissection with these tends to be extremely low, and intervention for these overall tends to be very, very rare. Dr. Louis, what are your other thoughts on that?
3: Thanks, Charlie. We have written about the aortic dilatation in Tetralogy of Fallot and published that the prevalence is about 20% in the population. Despite the fact that it's often enlarged in Tetralogy of Fallot, decisions about aortic management are confounded by the lack of data about the risk of complications. As far as I know, there have been only six case reports of aortic dissection in the Tetralogy of Fallot population. Current guidelines do recommend surgery when the aortic root is greater than 5.5 centimeters with no risk factors in the general population. These guidelines are generally not applied to patients with tetralogy of flow as the risk of dissection has been argued to be extremely low. Causes for aortic dilatation in tetralogy of flow has been hypothesized to be patients who've had uh, a late repair. And so therefore had longstanding right to left shunt patients who've had a BTT shunt. And as these patients age into adulthood, we do think that acquired cardiovascular comorbidities will also affect them as well. And one of the leading reasons for aortic dilatation in the general population is just hypertension. And it's no mystery that our patients will also develop hypertension as well. Which may lead to further aortic dilatation of these roots, which may be already vulnerable to dilation. Thank you so
1: much. Well, you might have guessed at this point that our patient was unfortunately one of the unlucky patients with the trilogy of flow that suffered with aortic issues. When she presented to us in her 40s, had severe aortic regurgitation with left ventricular dilation such that she underwent an aortic valve replacement about 17 years after the pulmonary valve replacement that we were discussing. This initially went okay, but then she developed endocarditis with a root pseudoaneurysm requiring antibiotics and repeat surgery for another aortic valve replacement and repair of the pseudoaneurysm. She had ongoing sternal wound infections requiring multiple revision surgeries and she has since been maintained on suppressive antibiotics. Fortunately, somehow, some
0: way, the pulmonary valve replacement does not seem to get infected. Wow. Tetra has been through so much, and her story also highlights that every patient is unique with their own set of risks and true need for personalized approach. Her case also illustrates how many sternotomies patients with congenital heart disease may undergo. As Dr. Louie alluded to earlier, by just the skin physical exam, you can tell so much of the surgical story. We always hear about pulmonic valve with patients with of flow, but for her, the aortic valve becomes such a focus of her care. Also, we've all seen several adult congenital patients suffering from endocarditis. both personally, we've seen it in clinical practice, but also on CardiNerds, we've had several cases demonstrating this. Dr. Louis, would you mind briefly discussing
3: endocarditis in this population and your approach to counseling them? Endocarditis is a really important complication for our patients with congenital heart disease. It accounts for 4% of admissions. It accounts for a mortality of anywhere between 4 to 7%, which is actually lower than the general population. The general population, we sometimes quote endocarditis mortality upwards of 15 20%. But that may have to do with age. Our patients are quite young and so benefit from being young when they undergo surgery in the setting of endocarditis. Your case underscores the real need to transfer these patients to centers that can care for patients with endocarditis. You really need a surgical team, a medical team that can really identify these cases quickly and apply the appropriate treatment in the patient population because of their prior surgeries, prosthetic valves. Many of them have had prior endocarditis episodes. These are all risk factors for repeat endocarditis. Uh, one of the things that I try to do for my patients is remind them of the importance of good dental hygiene, visiting their dentist regularly seeking treatment for any recurrent skin infections and avoiding tattoos or piercings. The other thing I counsel my patients on is the development of fever. Now, in this day of the COVID pandemic, fever is often ascribed to COVID-19. And we've certainly, over the last year, have had patients go and get COVID tested and be COVID-negative and have persistent fever and be found to have endocarditis. And it's really, really important that these patients are educated about recurrent fever and how to manage recurrent fever. Because if they went to their primary care doctor, they're often prescribed antibiotics empirically. And we counsel our patients, if they have recurrent fever for a few days, that they need to call our office and proceed with blood cultures and CBC prior to antibiotics. After they get the blood cultures, they can take the antibiotics, but we need to have those blood cultures cooking so that we can identify the appropriate organism and treat it appropriately for the risk of endocarditis in this population.
2: That was great. Yeah, thank you. And I think just on that last point, one thing I was taught in residency is that if there's any outpatient test that is going to be extremely influential, it's a blood culture you know, you can get other tests that might make you think, oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. But if you have a patient who has a positive blood culture as an outpatient, it changes management drastically. You call them and send them to the emergency department right away. So thank you very much for all the education on that, Dr. Louis.
1: And I'll say that it's definitely an important consideration that, especially in this case, we can see it costs this patient extra sternotomies. So definitely is very important to keep in mind. However, she continued to have issues here and there. About one year after her aortic surgery, she had an unheralded syncopal event while driving, and her EKG now showed a QRS duration of 180 milliseconds, which we discussed earlier on is a risk for malicious arrhythmias. So given this, along with her echo showing persistent RV enlargement and dysfunction, she underwent placement of an ICD for sudden cardiac death prevention. Now, we've talked about risk factors for VT and for sudden cardiac death, but in terms of clinical decision-making in young patients, I think that we all have some hesitancy with device implantation, especially in a patient with endocarditis. Am I right,
3: Dr. Lilly? That's absolutely right, Josh. Uh, Our patients with devices have an increased risk of endocarditis. CHD patients with an ICD experience more inappropriate shocks compared to those without CHD. And in one study, 25% of TOF patients with an ICD received an inappropriate shock. Another 14% developed lead abnormalities, including device infections.
1: Thank you. Indeed, she did go on to develop atrial flutter, and she required multiple cardioversions and antiarrhythmics over the next year. Fortunately, she never had an
0: ICD shock for ventricular arrhythmias. I'm glad to hear that, Josh. Hopefully, she hasn't had much more happen in terms of complications after undergoing so much already. Well, she continues to keep things interesting. She recently, now 52 years old, has
1: come in with progressive fatigue and dyspnea on exertion, She's had trouble getting up even one flight of stairs. Her echocardiogram now shows moderate prosthetic pulmonic regurgitation without significant obstruction and TR that is moderate at most.
2: Charlie, now that we've seen this on echo with the prosthesis, what do you think? Yeah, thanks for that update, Josh. And I think whenever there's this discordance between what patients are describing and or what we see on our objective data, be it exam, echo, MRI, whatever it is, I think we always have to make sure we're reassessing things closely. And if there's one thing I've learned over my brief training in ACHD so far is how challenging it can be to assess pulmonic regurgitation. Hopefully, now with Dr. Louis' help, we'll be a little bit better at listening to it properly. But you know, a lot of our assessment depends on the exam and also on ECHO, the pulmonic regurgitant, its continuous wave Doppler. And as we started to allude to earlier, these things can be confounded by what the pulmonary pressures are and also the RV diastolic function. Because when you think of concurrent PA and RV tracings, basically if the RV diastolic pressure is higher and or the PA diastolic pressure is lower, then that halftime is going to be shorter and that'll affect both our exam and the CW Doppler. And then it's especially true in patients with old prostheses and those can be calcified and so our echo imaging can be really challenging and the color may not be all that impressive.
1: Thanks, Charlie. So it's for a lot of these reasons that Tetra eventually underwent a cardiac MRI. The study verified the ECHO findings and actually prompted another cardiac catheterization for hemodynamic assessment. Concurrent PA and RV tracing showed equalization in mid-diastole, consistent with greater than moderate pulmonic regurgitation. Her right atrial pressures were markedly elevated to 19 with a Kussmalsen. In addition, as we mentioned before, she certainly has left heart diastolic dysfunction as her wedge pressure was 25. Her PA pressures were elevated, though only to a mean of 35. This transpulmonary gradient suggests the elevation is due to left heart and post-capillary disease rather than pulmonary vascular and precapillary disease. And indeed, her cardiac output was quite reduced with an index of 1.8 liters per minute per meter squared, consistent with hemodynamically significant pulmonic regurgitation. Dr. Wee, do you have any other thoughts about the findings on this catheterization?
3: Yeah, your patient, unfortunately, has developed heart failure, and heart failure is one of the leading causes of death in our patient population. Heart failure ranges from about 10 to 50% of our population, and it's one of the growing reasons for hospitalizations. Risk factors for developing heart failure in this population include the myocardial damages that have occurred over the subsequent surgeries over her lifetime, chronic volume and or pressure load, the ventricular dyssynchrony, and sometimes these patients even develop coronary artery disease. Lesions in which the volume loading of the right ventricle occurs, such as pulmonary regurgitation, often lead to LV dysfunction through ventricular-ventricular interactions in tetralogy of flow. And for these lesions in which RV volume overload then leads to LV systolic dysfunction, intervention to remove the volume load, such as pulmonary valve replacements, can often help. But heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction is not the only problem that these patients can have. Diastolic dysfunction can also occur in both the LV and the RV residual pulmonary stenosis, and especially in the setting of prosthetic valves where you don't just get pure regurgitation, you often get mixed lesions in this setting, and you can get uh, mixed pulmonary regurgitation and pulmonary stenosis that can lead to right ventricular hypertrophy. This dilatation and hypertrophy can lead to right ventricular restriction. 52% of patients in a multi-standard study of adult tetralogy of patients had RV diastolic dysfunction. And in the same cohort, about 14% had LV diastolic dysfunction. Now, diastolic dysfunction can occur for multiple reasons, not just being a tetralogy of flow patient, but from acquired comorbidities such as hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, older age, VT, and having had the multiple surgeries. The relaxation from the conduction system can also result in relaxation abnormalities. And as we've discussed before, elevated LVN diastolic pressure greater than 12 has been associated with an increased risk of sudden death in this population. What we don't know is the role of next-generation heart failure therapies for our patients with tetralogy of flow. And as you all know, SGL-2 inhibitors as well as the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors have not been well studied in adults with congenital heart disease and may after offer some therapeutic benefit for this patient population.
2: That was great, Dr. Louis. And if I could just add one other nugget as if that wasn't enough. As you mentioned, coronary disease can certainly happen in these patients. And just recently, I had a patient with repaired tetralogy present with an NSTEMI and she needed to go to the cath lab and so just for all those budding interventionalists out there, Dan, remember, these patients may not be the ideal hashtag radial first candidate. So you need to review their surgical history. So this patient could not go radial since she's had a uh, right BT. And my patient this past week had had a prior brachial cutdown. So look at their surgical history, look at their arms, do your physical exam before you cath them, and look at cross-sectional imaging to see if there's other things that would make your cath more difficult than it needs to be. Well, Charlie, thanks
0: for these amazing pearls. And I definitely would not have been thinking about that. So very much appreciative. And Dr. Louie, that analysis of the hemodynamics of what's going on with this patient has been very helpful in framing that we have a problem. And it sounds like she's pretty decompensated. How did the team proceed speaking of interventions? I'm glad you
1: asked. So given how complicated her last sternotomy was with infections and sort of the need for repeat surgery, the team and the patient had a discussion and they elected to proceed with a percutaneous pulmonary valve and did a valve and valve replacement. She underwent this recently. The procedure was successful
2: and symptomatically, she reports feeling much better. Great to hear. She's been through so much. I'm glad to hear that she's doing much better now. And I think one thing that's really wild about ACHD is just the wide variety of clinical courses these patients can have, even with the same disease, as we've kind of alluded to earlier. So some tetralogy patients such as herself can have many surgeries, even more than what she's had, and they may be crippled with pulmonary hypertension from their early shunts or their ongoing structural heart disease. On the other hand, just the other day, I saw a woman in her 70s with tetralogy, and she's only had two prior surgeries, and she's doing really well. Great. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks,
3: Charlie. Thanks, Josh. It's been an incredible case, and it just sort of highlights the advances in diagnosis, management of patients with Tetralogy of flow that has really resulted in a growing population of adults. This is a real cause for celebration, as there are now more adults than there are children with Tetralogy of Fallot. And these patients have grown up, they've had families, they have jobs, and some of them have even retired as my patients approach age 70 and 80. It's a real testament to the resilience of patients with congenital heart disease, but we have emerging challenges for us. As we care for these individuals, what we've discussed, including heart failure, arrhythmia, we need more sensitive markers on right heart failure, timing of pulmonary valve replacement, and looking at the role of new and novel heart failure agents. These patients really do require lifelong follow-up with an adult congenital cardiologist so that we may continue to optimally care and improve on their outcomes long-term.
1: Wow. I don't
3: think I could have said that
1: better myself. As somebody who's planning to go into adult congenital heart disease, so much of what you just said is at the core of my motivation to pursue a career in the field. It's a growing population. It's an interesting population. And I think it's so important that we do everything we can in the field to support them having the best quality and quantity of life that they can. So Dr. Louis, before we let you go, we have to take time for a Cardionerds Classic. I need to ask you, what makes your heart flutter about adult congenital heart disease?
3: Adult congenital heart disease is a field that has been built on the advances of our pediatric colleagues, our cardiologists, and cardiac surgeons over the last 100 years. I'm just constantly impressed with how my patients have learned to enjoy life, exercise, work, raise a family, despite all odds, surgeries, and heart disease that they were born with their resilience in the face of each challenge, the innovations in surgery and catheter and electrophysiologic treatments continue to improve their lives. And I'm really honored to be able to care for this patient population and walk with them through their journey in life. Thank you so much, Dr. Louis, for that. Adult congenital heart disease clearly
0: is a broad field and has so many overlaps with other specialties. So turning to you, Charlie, we'd love to hear about your experience as an adult congenital heart disease fellow and career plans moving forward.
2: Sure. Thanks, Dan. I think just as you said, it has so many overlaps with other specialties, and I think that's one of the reasons I fell in love with it. I actually didn't really have much exposure to ACHD until the end of my second year of cardiology. And prior to that, I entertained just about every subspecialty in cardiology and had initially made plans for heart failure training until I did my CHD rotation. Got a little dicey there, but I think <laughs> I'm here now. And I think, you know, everything from the complex anatomy and the complex hemodynamics, which overlap, the long-term patient relationships and also caring for inpatients who just had surgery, the complex decision-making, like we said, and then the non-invasive echo and invasive cath diagnostics just really get me excited about going to work every day. In addition, as we talked about, each patient is a history lesson, particularly about cardiology, but just about medicine in general. And I'm humbled every day about what the pioneers of the field did years ago. ACHD fellowships really busy. I do a lot of echo in clinic. I run inpatients. I do caths, tees, and spend a lot of time with the surgeons, but I'm loving every minute of it. Thanks, Charlie, for that. And I
0: have to say, as you threw in your nuggets throughout this episode, if we could see every time you had something to share or every time you were absorbing a nugget from Dr. Louie, we could just see your eyes light up and really just give off this amazing vibe of love for this field, the passion for the thought process and the cerebral aspects behind it. And so it was a real true pleasure to see. And you've gotten me very excited about adult congenital, for sure. You know, you and
1: me both, this has been a wonderful episode for me, a wonderful experience. Just always more to learn about congenital heart disease and cardiology in general. I just want to thank Charlie and Dr. Louis for coming today and talking through this case with us. I really think that all of our cardio nerds out there will take a lot away from it.
4: Hey, cardio nerd. My name is Karen Stout. I'm an ACHD nerd at the University of Washington in Seattle. and I'm a member of the Medical Advisory Board with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. Not long ago, congenital heart disease was widely considered to be an exclusively pediatric field, given the short lifespan of our patients. However, advances in diagnosis and management have transformed many patients' lives and brought them into adulthood. There are now more adults living with CHDA than children. This growing population requires a specialized and personalized approach from a multidisciplinary teams. While not every cardio nerd will specialize in ACHD, you will all have the opportunity to touch the lives of adult patients with congenital heart disease, recognize their unique needs, and refer them to the appropriate centers if and when needed. We need both trainees eager to care for this patient population and non-ACHC providers to have fundamental knowledge about these conditions for optimal practice while working in tandem with board-certified adult and general heart disease providers. We congratulate the CardioNerds on their mission to democratize cardiovascular education and for creating this series to raise awareness about ACHD. I'm glad to say that this episode and all others in this series are brought to you in collaboration with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. ACHA's mission is to empower the CHD community by advancing access to resources and specialized care that improve patient-centered outcomes. The CardioNerds have clearly done that here. If you'd like to contribute to ACHA to provide educational resources, opportunities to connect with other providers, become a part of the Medical Advisory Board, or apply for ACHA research funding, please email info at achaheart.org. Again, email is info at achaheart, all one word, org. If you're interested in learning more about clinical congenital heart disease diagnosis and management, please note that there are free educational online resources available through Heart University and the Congenital Heart International Professionals, or CHIP, networks. Those have tremendous resources to provide further depth to your understanding of ACHD. You can find more about the ACHA, CHIP, and heartuniversity.com in the episode description on the CardioNerds website. Thank you.